Hello, everyone, and welcome to We Effed Up. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And we're here again with episode 44 on our biweekly journey to bring to you all of the times in history where we effed up. What are we talking about today, Cody? We are diving into a topic that is incredibly dense, incredibly complicated. Just one little episode in the history of the French Revolution. Oh, boy. This is uh, Marie Antoinette. Let them She's involved. Even though I know she didn't, that's probably apocryphal. She didn't really say that. Mm, it's, it's complicated, as with everything in the French Revolution. Yay, complicated so, history. Yes, the French Revolution. I have to go over some of it to give you some context, but this might be the quickest breeze through of the French Revolution that's ever been done. Oh man, we're going to get so much flack for this. You're going to be like, you forgot this and this. Oh my God. <laughs> it is so, such a dense, dense topic. Prepare thyself. If you want detail, go listen to, Mike Duncan did a season of it on Revolutions, and it was like 80 episodes, I think. Something Holy like that. crap. Okay. It was a lot. All right, so <sighs> brief so, me. <laughs> so by the 1780s, France was in a dire financial situation. Yeah, they gave us a bunch of money, yeah. Part of it. Yeah. Uh, wars throughout, well, not sorry, giving us money, but. Lent us. Uh, paying for the troops that was used. Yep. In a, like their own troops. But wars throughout the previous century, as well as a very inefficient and unequal tax system, had depleted the French treasury. This was partly rooted in how the French government was structured. The king decided expenditures, but regional parlements controlled revenue. Okay. That seems like it doesn't make sense, especially if you don't have computers, which of course they didn't at the time. Then your uh, your functioning system of in inputs versus outputs is uh, yeah. You have two different completely unaware of the other. Not necessarily unaware, but uncooperative with each other. Yeah, uh, these local parliaments were loath to increase taxes. So when the king wanted to finance a project, like intervening in the American Revolutionary War, he had to do so via loans. Oh, cool. Yep. Yep, I see where this is going. The king at this time was Louis the Sixteenth. I'm gonna show you a picture of Louis. He is the effer upper for this episode. And there's his coronation portrait. Fancy. Very fancy. He's got a big old robe, cloak, mm-hmm. hat. He's not wearing a hat. He's wearing, he's wearing a wig. He's holding a hat. No, oh, he's holding it. Yeah, okay, yeah. Surprise! There's no uh, dogs in the picture. Wasn't that kind of common? Was to have like a dog in the picture? Uh, yeah, sometimes, but okay. It's been on the country. A little bit about Louis. Born August 23rd, 1754, at the Palace of Versailles, yeah. outside Paris. Son of Louis, the Dauphin of France, and his wife, Maria Josepha of Saxony. Uh, two younger brothers, Louis Stanislaus and Charles Philippe, uh, would eventually succeed our Louis to the throne many, many, many years later. Uh, he married Marie Antoinette, the youngest daughter of Holy Roman Emperor Francis I and his wife, the Austrian Archduchess Maria Theresa, in May 1770. His father and his older brother predeceased him, so when his grandfather, King Louis XV, died in May 1774, Louis XVI succeeded to the throne at age 19. Yep, 19, best age for oh, yeah. succession to the throne. To have absolute power. Yeah, 19, a 19-year-old me would have done really good things. Mm-hmm. Nothing but. Uh, Louis and Marie Antoinette would have four children between 1778 and 1786. Only one would survive into adulthood. Oh, no. We'll get into why one of them doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the marriage was not popular with the French public, as Marie Antoinette was seen as a foreign influence on the 
easily swayed Louis, and the Austrian alliance, you know, that came about from the marriage was seen as detrimental to France. Oh. So, already oh, people boy. aren't people aren't exactly too, you know, thrilled with her at least. Yeah, but they're they're like this is a marriage of power, and the people are like we don't like her. Yeah. And it's so weird how public influence can can totally sway one way or the other how people feel or or how the success of a monarch can you know can yeah. can go on. It's weird. Well, I mean, it shows that you know the the fundamental truth that none of these absolute monarchs wanted to accept the power came from the people. Yeah, a revolving door of finance ministers could not resolve the problem, so Louis had no choice but to but to summon the Estates General in June seventeen eighty nine. The Estates General? The Estates General. This is probably something you're probably taught in like world history class in like high school. When they, I assume because the French Revolution is always going to be covered, but all, as always, it's always just kind of blown over. This is always mentioned. Sure. I uh, I don't remember this at all, so mm. continue. Uh, the Estates General was an assembly of delegates from across France that met to advise the king on policy. It first met in 1302 um, and was called at intermittent in- intervals until 1614. The 1789 gathering was the first since 1614. Holy crap. So they haven't met in well over a century and a half. So it's like uh, at at that time, at least prior to what we're talking about right now, it was sort of like a, a figure, just like a, a figurehead thing. I think like, well, like the English parliament during the Middle Ages. The king would call parliament when he needed money, basically. <laughs> cool. So, but in this, this is case... like less powerful than the English parliament. Ah, uh, okay. But but the, it is like an advisory board yes. kind of, yes. like if you thought of France as a um, as a corporation, this would be like the corporate advisory board. He's yeah, and Louis up. is the CEO, COO, CFO, CTO, yeah, CSO. He's the Elon Musk. Well, he's about to drive this into the ground too. So oh, uh, the assembly was composed of one thousand two hundred and thirteen delegates divided into estates. Oh, okay. So this, I thought this was like oh no no no, no 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 no. No, no, this no, no, is no, no, no. 1,200 people. Yes. Okay, that's a lot more messy. I got yeah. it. The first estate had 304 delegates and was composed of members of the clergy. The Roman Catholic Church, control, they owned about 10% of French land and had special taxes and privileges. <laughs> okay, sure. The second estate had 282 delegates and consisted of the aristocracy, who owned about a quarter of the land. Okay. The third estate had 627 delegates and represented everyone else. So what is that proportion wise like Well I'm I'm about to okay. kind of go into it a little bit. The assembly did not vote by individual delegates but by estate. So there's only 3? There are only 3 votes. Oh, this is dumb. Essentially yeah. what you're saying is the 627 delegate estate has Count the as- same power as the 300 something and the clergy. Less, but we'll get into it here. Despite okay. representing 98% of the French population, the third estate was consistently outvoted by the other two estates. Of course. Who favored upholding the conservative order of things. Sure, sure. The, the church and the aristocracy. Yes. They're always going to side together. Even though they represent 2% of the people. On June 17, 1789, the third estate voted to separate from the estates general and establish its own body, the National Assembly. Okay. It's like, we're not going to take this anymore. We're going to establish like, our is, own shit. It's like, you know, you have... Events happening like uh, the tennis court oath, that type of thing. Basically, um, Louis and the other two estates like kept locking the third estate out of places to meet. So they eventually just met on a tennis court and they swore not to disband until they'd reformed things. 
Ooh, it's called the okay. Tennis Court Oath. After failing to stop this meeting, Louis acceded to the move, and the National Assembly replaced the estate's general. Basically, Louis kind of backed into a corner. He like kind of has to accept this. He's placating them. Yes. He's like, well, I see yeah. what's happening here. The Assembly proved extremely popular with the people of Paris. When the king removed the popular finance minister, Jacques Necker, who was seen as sympathetic to the cause of the common people, a mob stormed the Bastille prison on July 14th. Whoa. Uh, the Bastille was a castle in the middle of Paris constructed in the late 14th century. Its use as a prison to hold political dissidents led it to be a symbol of repression for the commoners, and its storming and destruction was a major blow for royal authority. Bastille Day, and, right? Yep. Okay. And that's why this is commemorated to this very day, and there's a image of it. Being destroyed. Or being attacked, at least. Yeah. And it, the, the ironic thing is, like, it hadn't really been used for a while. <laughs> like, there were only seven prisoners in there. Oh. Um... But it was still like this powerful symbol. They basically tear it down almost immediately. Did they get the prisoners out? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if they were killed or if they got them out. I don't remember exactly, to be honest. But But it was more like a political statement. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, In July 1789, the National Assembly began work on on a constitution for France. Up to this point, the monarch and the nobility had ruled with unfettered absolute authority. Because like when you when you look at it like and you see like all these absolute monarchs like being very against constitutions, like, like the idea of one, on the face of it, you're like, why would they want to? Like, why would they be against it? It's like it just says how the structure of the government is set up. But when you think about it, a constitution says what the government can do, and also says what the government can't do. Right. And absolute monarchs don't like being told what they can't do. Right. Exactly. Especially if you're going to be a shady monarch. Yes. Well, even then, even then, like you have some of them who are like as benevolent as an absolute monarch can be. In well, a way, I think it also depends on whether or not the monarch believes that they have issue from like if God. they're yeah if they're yeah. because if they're appointed by God or if they have like holy issue or whatever yeah then they're gonna be like well you can't tell me what to do because I rule because God says so yeah and like even the more moderate absolute monarchs were like no 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 uh, the August decrees by the National Assembly abolished the feudal system. Oh. Yeah, which is a big deal, among other reforms. And the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen is issued on August 26th. It's kind of like, almost like a Bill of Rights type of thing. In October 1789, a mob of thousands of women protesting the high bread prices marched to Versailles and forced the royal family to return to Paris, where they take up residence in the Tuileries Palace. Okay. As in central Paris, uh, right next to the Louvre, where the Louvre is today. Yeah, I've I've been to Paris, but I did not see that part of it. I only saw the catacombs, and then we left immediately back to uh, Charles de Gaulle. Uh, much of the radical elements of the revolution were centered on Paris. While not necessarily supportive of the monarchy, the rural areas were much more moderate. Of course, that, I mean, it doesn't affect you as much if people aren't bursting, you know, yeah, the, you know, going down your streets protesting yeah. and stuff. As their historical privileges were torn down, many of the old aristocrats left France, becoming the first of the émigrés. Okay. So, like, they're like, you know what? We don't have as much power here. We're just going to go somewhere else. Fair. We're treated like as we should be, like nobles. It's funny. Paris continues to be, like, a central revolutionary area yeah. in France, like, up until today. Yeah. Interesting. Which is funny, because, like, the re- <laughs> this is fast-forwarding a little bit, but, like, when Napoleon Third basically tore, like, he ordered, like, Paris to be, like, basically redesigned completely. Mm-hmm. The reason Paris has those big, wide avenues mm-hmm. is so barricades could not be thrown up by the populace. Because oh. Paris used to have like these real narrow, like just random streets, and mm-hmm. it was very easy to throw a barricade. Mm. Um, 
just you know ad hoc by a protesting populace, which caught, which makes it more difficult to put down any sort of revolt. Sure. So that's why, that's why any of these cities have big, wide, wide, huge avenues like that. Mm-hmm. That's why. Many of these émigrés ended up at foreign courts, influencing foreign opinion on the events happening in France. In July 1790, with the civil constitution of the clergy, the assembly gutted the political power of the Catholic Church in France. Uh-oh. And in September 1790, the regional parliaments were, were abolished with the assembly assuming their taxing powers. This is kind of just, just to give you kind of an idea of the shift in power from these ancient institutions, these like aristocracy, towards these popular assemblies of people. Yeah, and it seems yeah. like it was pretty quick. Very quick. So Louis the Sixteenth was like, "Oh, you know, it's fine. I'll appease the masses. I'll I'll vote in, or I'll say that this assembly is okay." Yeah. And then the assembly proceeded to just decimate yes. his rule. Pretty much. Since their forced removal from Versailles in October 1789, Louis and the royal family have been kept under virtual house arrest at the Tuileries. By 1791, the power of the monarchy had been greatly eroded with real power in the hands of the assembly. Since his return to Paris. Louis had been secretly corresponding with moderates in the assembly, including the prominent Comte de Mirabeau, who moderated the radicals in the assembly who wished for further limitations on the king's power or the abolition of the monarchy altogether. Ooh, so, so he's got a mole. So yeah, so Louis's talking to these moderates like, hey, you know, let's just slow things down. Let's you you kind of throw water on these radicals here, you know. And throughout this period, the monarchy was financially supported through a civil list, which is kind of similar to how the UK government funds funds the monarchy today through okay. what's called a civil list. Louis began diverting funds from the civil list towards counter-revolutionary activities. Uh-oh. Never a good idea. In February 1791, a large group of supporters, armed with weapons, demonstrated in front of the Tuileries. When confronted by the National Guard, Louis was forced to disperse the protesters, but he was given the impression that the people were with him. The death of Mirabeau in April 1791 removed much of the moderating influence from the assembly, and Louis began to worry for the safety of himself and his family. Uh-oh. This is what happens when you uh, misappropriate funds for, you know, years and years and take away the power of the people. They're going to get pissed. Well, I mean, you, I mean, you have to maintain your royal lifestyle and hunt and screw and... All those sorts of things. I mean, to quote uh, an actor who played Louis the Sixteenth in a particular movie, it's good to be the king. <laughs> At the prodding of Marie Antoinette, Louis began to formulate plans to escape from Paris to an ally, the Marquis de Boille, who was at the citadel of Montmédy on the border with the Austrian Netherlands with 10,000 troops. Because the Austrians, they control the Netherlands at this point. Or at least uh, what is today Belgium. Uh, Louis hoped to rendezvous with Boille and his troops, and with foreign support to crush the revolution once and for all. Okay, so he's going to secretly abscond with his this family to keep them safe, mm-hmm. but then he's going to go and round up a whole bunch of troops and then come back to Paris and, yep. and put down the people. Yes. I got it. The escape was planned by the Baron de Bretuil, the king's ambassador overseas, who was you know going to all these courts, you know, hoping to drum up support. Help us, help us. Yep, pretty much. And Count Axel von Fersen, that's a dope name. A Swedish expat and a favorite of Marie Antoinette. There was all these rumors that he was her lover, but historians are like, there's no proof. And also, it's like, once again, the there's this bad sense of historiography. I mean, I think we're slowly getting out of it, at least in the 21st century, that like the historical perception was, 
oh, it's a powerful woman. Well, she's got to have a lot of lovers. Similar to Catherine the Great. Yeah, or Cleopatra. Yeah. Like, certainly, it's just like... It, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's really horrible perception. But And the, even if she did, so what? <laughs> yeah. The plan cooked up by Brett Wheel and Von Fersen called for the royal party to split up and take two light, fast carriages to Montmédy, which is 200 miles away. So it's going to take, take a little while to get there. Mm-hmm. Escorted by detachments of royal troops who were loyal to the royal family. Okay. Louis overrides this plan, insisting on taking a single large carriage with the royals traveling in a single party. I see. The problem with this was that a large carriage required six horses, was much slower, much more conspicuous, and was more prone to breaking down. Of course. Because the whole object is to get to this place fast before anybody knows you're gone. Okay. And also, I think a separate thing is if, uh, so let's say you take these two carriages, lighter, faster, even if one of them gets ambushed, then you still have members of the other, still members of the royal family Uh, in the other carriage. I mean, obviously, you don't want the king, the one with the king to get captured. I mean, it's, it's less important that, you know... If Marie Antoinette and her kids got captured, it's maybe less important, but... But then he still has offspring. Yeah. Because it's agnetic succession, right? Like where it goes from, like, father to son? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, in that case, and and Louis has a son, yes. Uh-huh. So, in that case, even if Louis, Louis XVI is captured, then at least his son survives. Yeah, I mean, his son's a child, but yeah. Um... I, I, he was a child, well, so... Yeah. There's so many child, child. Uh, kings. Yeah, I mean he's 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 not much older than us at this point. Lord. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Their departure was also delayed until around midnight on June 21st, 1789. Um, there's this interesting episode where the Mar- where branch when I had to evade uh, a hero of the American Revolution, the Marquis de Lafayette, who was head of the National Guard at this time. Oh. So it's an interesting episode, but it's. Kind of irrelevant. Um, but the point being, they were delayed. And the delay was enough to where the escort kind of dispersed, thinking that the plan had called off. So they now no longer have this royal escort. Oh, no. But it's like if they had still taken the smaller carriages, they could have gotten there faster. Mm-hmm. And it's going to come in candy here in a moment. Okay. So the royal party consisted of Louis, who is disguised as a valet. Okay. Marie Antoinette, who is disguised as a nurse. Their children, annoyingly named Louis and Marie. <laughs> You could just call him Baby Louie and Baby Murray. I think. Um, How about Lil Louie? I Lil- think Louie's middle name was Joseph. And then Marie was Marie Therese. Okay. So, but. Anyways. Princess Elizabeth, who was Louis's sister, she mm-hmm. was disguised as a governess. Okay. And the Marquise de Torzel, who was the children's actual governess, mm-hmm. disguised as a Russian noble. Okay. Before he departed, Louis left a 16 page letter detailing his opposition to almost all the revolutionary reforms. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. This He's like, gonna... this will this will delay them. They'll, it'll take them a year to read all 16 pages. It's like, this was definitely a shot yourself in the foot moment, because this will come back later. Mm-hmm. During the trip, the royal family did themselves no favors in regards to secrecy. Oh, my God. Louis freely chatted with the locals during stopovers to change horses. What a freaking idiot. And Marie Antoinette gave a helpful local a silver plate, which begs two questions. One, why? Why did you bring a plate with you? Yeah, exactly. Why did you bring a plate? The whole point is to get to this place fast. No, we must eat on our silver plates. Around 8 p.m. on June 21st, the royal party arrived in Saint-Manuel and made a pit stop because, you know, Gotta relieve yourself every now and then. By this time, 
it had been realized that Louis had escaped from the Tuileries. Word was was dispatched in all directions. So I'm like, he left around midnight. It's now 8 p.m. So he's been so, yeah, been gone for most of the day. <laughs> the postmaster of the town, Jean-Baptiste Drouet, recognized the king from his image on an assignat, which was a sort of like paper currency in use at the time. Because mm-hmm. he's the king. His image is going to be on it. Of course. But was unsure about what to do. It's like, <laughs> is that the king? Because it's also, it's like, is that... Is that the king? Isn't I mean, he's never seen the king before. Most of these people haven't. So yeah, it's like and, and uh, good on him for being able to recognize him via a paper iteration. Yeah. So it's like, and uh, it's also like the doubt of like, is that him? Is that really him? And yeah. it's like, but also seeing it's like, well, there's his wife, and she looks kind of fancy. They got two children, silver They're plates, in a big huge carriage. Hmm. The party departed about 10 minutes later, uh, but around 9 p.m., word reached Drouet that the king had escaped Paris. So then he's like, okay, that was definitely the king. He immediately set off in the, king's, in the direction that the king's carriage went. Drouet caught up with him in Varennes, which is why this whole episode is called The Flight to Varennes. Drouet notified the local authorities, and Louis was arrested. The family was only 31 miles from their destination of Montmédy. So if they'd taken those faster carriages, there's a good chance they would have made it. Yeah. And maybe not stop to dish out silver plates. Yeah. Idiots. So like there's kind of like it's kinda of hard to read out, but like here's here's kinda of like the flight. Here's Paris, a few other stops. There's their destination. There's where they got stopped. Wow. Yeah. And here's an image of them being being identified and arrested. Like here's like National Guard troops be like Give us the king, you know, here's the king, here's Marie Antoinette, here's the kids. They're like, we're not them. They're like, you definitely You're are. Definitely Way to go. them. So, uh, he was actually, like, he was, like, for, confirmed to be him. There was a local judge uh, who was awakened, because this is, like, you know, middle of the night, it was, like, mm-hmm. 11 o'clock. He was awakened because people knew that he had been to Versailles before. Mm-hmm. Ooh, so he can identify them. Yeah, he's like, oh, for yeah, sure. that's good. That, that, yeah, that's the king. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. Yep. That's what you get for toting yourself around in public. Yep. Uh, the royal family was sent back to Paris and confinement at the Tuileries. When they arrived in Paris on June 25th, they were met not by a cheering crowd. Not by a jeering crowd. The people gathered just stared at them in complete silence. Ooh, unnerving. Which, yeah, that would be more chilling than oh, if yeah. they were, like, heckling you. Oh, yeah. Because you just... There's like hundreds of people on the streets. You're riding your carriage in a town and silence. Yeah. It's like, oh. Yeah. They're like, we have to. Yep. The flight, as well as as well as the political testament that Louis left behind, because remember, oh, he yeah, left the that letter. And, and they found it, and it was published the next day oh, in the papers. Man. So everybody got to see what he thought of all this, what's been going on. What an idiot. Oh, man. You should have, he should have waited and then sent it. Yeah. When he when he had arrived yep. wherever he was going. Yeah. What an idiot. Uh, this irreparably altered the public perception of the king. Yeah. The yeah. fact that Louis had fled with the apparent intention to put down the revolution by force made his position untenable. <laughs> this perception was only enhanced by the actions of other monarchs. Great. On July 5th, just, you know, about a couple weeks later... The Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold II, who was the brother of Marie Antoinette, 
issued the Padua Circular, which called on all other monarchs in Europe to help aid Louis. Oh, no. While it may seem like foreign monarchs might want to you know, take advantage of the turmoil going on in France, they didn't want a bottom-up revolution because such a movement might spread to their own countries and they might end up in the same boat as Louis. Of course, of course. So it's they not didn't. necessarily out of, you know, concern for Louis oh, yeah. or, you know, they the don't... stability of France. They just don't want it happening in their but not in my backyard. Yeah, they don't they don't want to <laughs> they're, they're nimbies. They don't want to um get involved and then have that become a popular topic of discussion with among the people of their country and then, you know, remove the monarchy there yep can't have assemblies everywhere gotta have kings yep on july 15th the assembly suspended louis from his duties as monarch pending the adoption of a constitution because remember this whole time they haven't had a constitution it's just kind of been louis assent right like even if it was like forced assent mm-hmm. on august 27th emperor leopold and king frederick william ii of prussia made the declaration of pilnitz which stated their aim to restore Louis to his former powers by force if necessary. Uh-oh. So, yeah, now you have these uh, these other, the monarchs of these countries being like, yeah, we're going to come in and make sure he gets back his powers, and we'll do it at the head of an army if, if we have to. The people are like, guess what? We're just going to kill his ass. <laughs> On September 14th, Louis was forced to accept the new constitution, which formally stripped him of much of his power and transformed France into a constitutional monarchy. Even though he agreed to the Constitution, Louis worked behind the scenes to solicit counter-revolutionary assistance. Of course he did. On December 3rd, he secretly wrote to King Frederick William, quote, Prevent the evil which is happening here before it overtakes the other states of Europe. End quote. I mean, they, I mean that was a real concern that the, the bleed of the revolution would, yeah. would seep into other places. Yeah, and that does happen. I mean, look at the Arab Spring. Yeah. It just like... You People know, are like, oh, wait, guy, what are they doing? One guy in Tunisia lit himself on fire, then all of a sudden, like, you know, a dozen countries are having protests, and yep. still, like, two of them devolve into still ongoing civil wars. So, yep. Austria and Prussia began military preparations for an invasion. To preempt them, the assembly declared war on April 20th, 1792. Beginning the War of the First Coalition, and over what would be 23 years of near-continuous conflict. Holy shit. All the way to 1815, the end of Napoleon's reign. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. Louis used his veto power, one of the few powers he had remaining when he could, to foil the actions of the assembly, but this only enhanced the perception of the king's collusion with the enemy. Of course, of course. On July 25th, the Duke of Brunswick, the general in charge of the Austro-Prussian forces, declared that any harm to the royal family would result in, quote, exemplary and eternally memorable revenge, end quote. Jeez, okay. It's like, I'm thinking, like, Louis is probably just thinking, just just stop saying stuff, guys. Just stop it. <laughs> I know, like, he, he's, he's using these big flowery words, and the people are like, oh, yeah. yeah. The threat backfired, spurring further protest against Louis. Sure. On August 10th, radicals stormed the Tuileries Palace, killing hundreds of Swiss guardsmen who were the personal bodyguards of the royals. Right. And capturing the royal family. They were imprisoned in the temple, an old fortress prison in Paris. And here is a depiction of that, kind of outside the Tuileries. There's a lot of conflict going on there. Yep. So radicals, now they, they take hold of the government. 
like firmly. And on September 21st, 1792, the assembly is replaced by the National Convention, and the monarchy is abolished. So Louis has no throne. He is now citizen Louis Capet. Ooh. He doesn't like that. On November 20th, while ransacking the Tuileries, a secret iron lockbox was discovered. When it was forced open, all of Louis' correspondence, including those with the foreign monarchs whom France was now fighting, was retrieved. Dang it. The convention moved forward with putting Louis on trial for treason. This began on December 10th. He was charged with 33 different crimes. I'm not going to list all of them, but point being... They had him. Lock, stock, and barrel. For the next month, the trial proceeded apace, but the outcome was never in doubt. On January 15th, 1793, at the convention, in a, I think it was like 683 to zero vote, found Louis guilty. Wow. Jeez. The next vote would be a bit more contentious. On January 17th, the convention voted to execute Louis. The motion succeeded by the bare minimum number of votes. So the assembly they was like... needed exactly 361 for it to pass, and they got exactly 361. So they were like, Louis clearly is guilty, mm-hmm. but we don't know if we want to kill him. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So there, there's, I guess there would be two reasons for that. Obviously, overwhelmingly, everybody thought he was guilty. There's beyond reasonable doubt. Not that even that that was the standard, but they thought he was guilty. But then you have a, a bare majority of people who are like, no, let's make an example out of him. But then I bet the other side of that would be like, let's let's keep him. Let's make let's put him in a prison and then show him, like ha- keep him there as yeah. a an example. Yes, I mean, and there his were, family. There were varying reasons, but essentially they were all for not. Yeah. I mean, point being. He's found guilty and sentenced to death. Yeah, because, I mean, if he was put in prison, would he actually be put in prison or would he be under house arrest? I mean, depend- you know? I mean, based on how the rest of his family would be treated, <laughs> they were kept in pretty horrible conditions. So, Dang. On January 21st, just four days later, Louis was guillotined at the Place de la Concorde, age 38. Jeez. And here is a... Ooh, we get a picture of his guillotining. Okay. Oh boy, that's uh, it's pretty rough. Holding up his head for the masses. I have some contemporary descriptions if you want them. Sure, let's let's hear it. The We're first talking about it. <laughs> was from the King's Confessor, Henry Edgeworth. And this is about because there's some this debate on how the King kind of took all this. What's a confessor? Uh, like like confessing his last like last rites like you know before he died oh, like okay. he's confessing his sins you know to, I to see, that okay. type of thing. Quote: The path leading to the scaffold was extremely rough and difficult to pass. The king was obliged to lean on my arm, and from the slowness with which he proceeded, I feared for a moment that his courage might fail. But what was my astonishment when arrived at the last step? I felt that he suddenly let go of my arm, and I saw him cross with a firm foot the breadth of the whole scaffold, silenced by his look alone, fifteen or twenty drums that were placed opposite to me, and in a voice so loud that it must have been heard at the Pont Tournant, I heard him pronounce distinctly these memorable words, I die innocent of all the crimes laid to my charge, I pardon those who have occasioned my death, and I pray to God that the blood you are going to shed may never be visited on France." End quote. Welp. Another account was from 
Charles Henry Sanson, the royal executioner. Oh, okay. Like he had been, because this was a court position. Sure. He had been appointed by Louis the Sixteenth. And then he killed him. Yeah, he was the guy who pulled the guillotine. Man, rough cuts. And he would be responsible for a lot of the deaths that would follow. Oh, boy. <laughs> Quote, arriving at the foot of the guillotine, Louis looked for a moment at the instruments of his execution and asked me why the drums had stopped beating. He came forward to speak, but there were shouts to the executioners to get on with their work. As he was strapped down, he exclaimed, My people, I die innocent. Then, turning towards us, Louis declared, Gentlemen, I am innocent of everything of which I am accused. I hope that my blood may cement the good fortune of the French. The blade fell. It was 10.22 a.m. One of my assistants showed the head of Louis to the people, whereupon a huge cry of, Vive la nation! Vive la République! arose, and an artillery salute rang out, which reached the ears of the imprisoned royal family. End quote. Jeez. Wow. So, it's a similar, uh, I guess, message from, from both yeah. accounts. A little yeah. different. Recollections are... Cause like, uh, One is really flowery. Because Sanson, I think he, like, he said his account in response to somebody who said, like, well, this happened, and he was like, well, no, actually, this happened. This was like... Not too long afterward. Edgeworth, he dies years later. And this is like, you know, him saying this years later. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, accounts are, this, you know, the exact accounts are different. Um, but clearly he said some shit right before he got his head cut yeah, off. Yeah, basically just like, you know. I hope that my blood means there's good fortune for the French. And yeah. that this is over with. Yeah. Which, that I'll be the last. Which honestly is more, I mean, when you're you know, literally faced with your having your head cut off. You know, it, it, it's brave. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, certainly not all of us could, you know, come out with more than a whimper. Yeah, he he probably was uh, was ruminating on that yeah, for a while, kind of fortifying himself for it. And I mean, this this happened over several years, like you know the oh, like from the beginning of the right, revolution, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like this this took a long time, so I'm sure that there were times where he had to contemplate this ev eventuality, especially like since he'd come back from Varenne. Yeah, but it was not to be. Following the execution of Louis, the revolution went into overdrive. Uh-oh. The anti-France coalition expanded, essentially turning the war into a France-versus-everyone conflict. In March, a revolutionary tribunal, which is always a... I love a, a good tribunal. Yes, which is always a reassuring phrase, was set up to try supposed opponents of the revolution. In April, the Committee of Public Safety was established with broad powers to protect the revolution and became the most powerful arm of the government. In June, a new constitution was adopted, formally abolishing the monarchy, although this constitution would never go into effect because France is kind of ruled under emergency powers at this point because mm -hmm. of the war, mm -hmm. by the Committee of Public Safety. In September, the Law of Suspects, which ordered the arrest of all suspected enemies of the revolution, uh, came into effect. This is considered to be the beginning of the Reign of Terror. Oh, no. This is when, like, the Committee of Public Safety is just chopping people's heads off right and left. Oh, if God. you are even suspected of being an opponent of the revolution, off with your head. Yikes. It was the point where, like, basically the burden of proof was on the accused to prove their innocence. Oh, no. Not on the accused to prove that they were guilty. Yikes. Over the next year, year... Over 16,000 were sentenced to death to the guillotine. Oh my gosh. With a further 12,000 killed without trial and over 10,000 dying in prison. Wow. Among those executed were Marie Antoinette, 
on October 16, 1793, and Princess Elizabeth on May 10, 1794. Both of Louis' younger brothers had fled France. They'd long fled France by this point. The king's son, Louis, died in prison on June 10, 1795, aged 10, Aww. largely from depression, abuse, and neglect. Oh. Yeah. Hate hearing kids get it, you know? Like Yeah. It's like he it's like he didn't do anything. It's not his fault that his, no. his parents are crappy. The royal couple's other surviving child, Marie Therese, was kept in prison until December seventeen ninety five, when she was swapped in a prisoner exchange with Austria. She would live on until eighteen fifty one. Wow. Yeah. For a while. Yes. Over the next two decades, France swung from success to failure, from radical liberalism to reactionary conservatism. Jeez. So Ama- they're destabilized at this point. So yeah, they're they get, just like, they, like wildly it, yes. going from one extreme to the other. Like, you know, the phrase, the revolution shall eat its children. This comes from this time. Because the reign of terror eventually, like, claims the lives of the people who started it. Right. Like Robespierre, and Danton. There's always a uh, there's always a, a period of destabilization yes. after any sort of, you know, government overthrow. Yes. So it sounds like the, it hit them pretty hard. Yeah. On May 18, 1804, France once again once again became a monarchy when Napoleon Bonaparte crowned himself Emperor of the French. Oh my god. Imagine being alive for that cycle. When, when was he crowned? 1804. And, it's, we're, and we're not even done with the chaos yet. Yeah, exactly. So it's only been like, you know, from the start to the finish of this, it's been like less than 15 years. Yeah, like, and... yeah, like the revolution begins in 1789 yep. and Napoleon loses his throne in 1815. So it's it's 100% like, 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 possible that people are alive from the beginning to the oh, end yeah. of this. Oh, yeah. And just imagine the cycle is like, no, screw the monarchs. We don't want monarchs anymore. And then Napoleon comes to power and they're like, damn it. And then eventually he loses his his power and, and then but, people well, are like, like, yay. Well, maybe not yay because he is replaced by Louis Sixteenth's younger brother, Louis the Eighteenth. Yep. In 1814. Yep. He would come to the throne and then... Louis' other brother, Charles X, would come to the throne in 1824. The French monarchy would be abolished for good after the deposition of Napoleon III in September 1870. So, so and very, very, very unlikely that somebody would have seen the beginning and the end of this. It's possible, but, yeah. I mean, it's not constant warfare up to 1870, but... Still. It, I mean, it's certainly chaotic. Because, I mean... Let's see here. I mean, from 1789, that chaos, pretty much... Constant war through 1815. There's another revolution in 1830 that uh, kicks Louis' brother Charles X off the throne and replaces them with a distant cousin, Louis Philippe. And then he's overthrown in 1848, and France abolishes the monarchy again. They elect, they have a presidential election, and who do they elect as president? Napoleon's nephew, who then, at the end of his term, uh, does what's called an auto-coup, Basically, when you're the one in charge and you commit a coup against your own government. Right. And he declares himself emperor in 1852. Oh, my God. And he's the, overthrown in 1870. And France has a republic until, you know, from 1870 all the way to the first or the Second World War. And then they got Nazis ruling France. Kick the Nazis out. So France is a republic again. And then 18, or 1958, or, yeah, kind of partly because of the Suez Crisis that we talked about. There's more instability in France. They have to have a new constitution. Yeah. So basically, France, the people of France got a taste of their own power and understood how powerful they were in terms of their their oh, own yeah. rule. But then they had these cycles where they would go through, okay, we're going to have a republic. 
And then the person who is, you know, whoever was at the head of the Republic, whether it be a constitutional monarch or an actual president, would be like, yeah, we're not giving up all of our power. Yeah. And so they would take it back. And then the country would be like, no, we're not doing that again. The overthrow. And just imagine living in that cycle over and over and over again yeah, like, and just let, being let, thrown into chaos. Like, let's say you're born in 1770. By the time this all ends in 1850, you're like 45 years old. And very tired. <laughs> yeah. Extremely tired. So I mean you weren't conscripted in the military and dead. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or or starving. Yeah. Because yeah. Th- that, oh, that's yeah. the other thing. Like we're talking about Louis the Sixteenth, but the people of France were hugely affected by this. Oh yeah. I mean they were they were right like the women rioted over bread and they went to Versailles and stole him. <laughs> right, yeah, rousted him out of the Yeah. And Versailles is is kind of far away from Paris. Like if if you're yeah. not driving. Yeah. It's kind of far away. So they all roused. They went, they took this huge journey to there and they were like, no, give me his ass. We're going back to Paris. Well, like the National Guard escorted him to Paris. Right. But the women women were like, you're going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Just over the price of bread. Over bread. But. Which is why, like, I mean, there are so so many riots in France over bread. Yeah. The fact that, like, bakeries there are subsidized by the government because, like, we're not doing that again. Yeah. Well, and it just goes to show, like, if they're rioting over bread, which to us seems like something really small, you can tell it was a huge deal. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the basic food of everywhere, you know. So if the if they're rioting that hard to the point where they're going to go to Versailles and roust him out of his castle, which also Versailles is a castle, so there's enough of them that it was that dangerous. Well, I mean, it's not a not like a medieval castle. I mean, it's a big palace, but what? it has its fortifications. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But, but, sorry, yeah. it's a palace. Yeah. In January 1815, uh, Louis XVI and Marie were interred in the Basilica of Saint Denis, the ancient resting place of centuries of French royalty. While France was firmly on the path to revolution by the time of the flight to Varennes, Louis XVI's actions emboldened the radical factions which took hold of the revolution and would lead it into its bloodiest period. Of course. Of course. So it's like... If he had stayed, potentially, and just kind of, like, rode it out... Yes. He probably wouldn't have lost his head. Yeah. Would he have been a regular citizen? Yeah. Yeah, or it's, like, just a constitutional monarch at best. I I mean, is there a chance that, like... Yeah, these radicals were always going to take hold. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And even like, if he had succeeded, if he'd gotten a monomedy, how does that change things? Like, yeah. is he able to put it down? Right. Is are the ten thousand troops enough? Yeah. And and if he fails, it's like he's just in exile for the rest of his life. His sons and his brothers. Like, I mean, his son didn't rule anyway, but his brothers never rule. So it's like you never. I mean, I mean, I guess you still could have a Bourbon restoration in 1815 or 1814, but there's Unlikely. so many variables that could happen. Well, I mean, one of the things that happens kind of consistently when it comes to rulers who are, you know, they flee the country and then they try to rule from afar, is that the people will just be like, "Yeah, you're not here," so or you have a power vacuum where somebody else comes in and takes over because yeah. they're like, "Well, that person is, you know." A hundred or two hundred miles away. So yeah. why should we listen to them? Yeah, I'm the big bad now. Listen to me. I'm installed in Paris, yes. and people will listen to me. So yeah, I mean, and if you just taking those faster carriages, <laughs> should have and not it. and not stop to shoot to, to shoot the well to, to shoot the crap with the locals. You know, doling about, out silver plates and shit. I know, just talking talking with them about the ball game. Be like, hey, did you. Uh, hear about that tennis court thing yeah that's crazy right i can't think of sports they played back then 
Because <laughs> it certainly wasn't. Lacrosse? I don't know. Croquet. Maybe, yeah. Croquet. I bet you they had croquet then. Yeah, or hunting or some shooting or something other. But Yeah. But yeah, so that is Louis XVI. Dang. And the flight to Varin. Uh, sources for this. Ian Davidson, The French Revolution from 2016. William Doyle, The Oxford History of the French Revolution, third edition from 2018. John Hardman, Louis Sixteenth, The Silent King from 2016. Peter McPhee, The French Revolution from 2002. And Monroe Price, The Fall of the French Monarchy from 2011. The podcast I'm going to recommend this week is Adjacent. Uh, because it is uh, uh, centers around a person who comes to prominence around this time. The podcast is The Age of Napoleon. Nice. Uh, very good. Uh, goes into detail about, like, you know, just, you know, Napoleon and um, just the events surrounding him. I think he's, I think he's past the, he's past the point where he declared himself emperor. Uh, so he's, you know, pretty far in, but it, it, it's a good podcast. I, I highly recommend it. So that's such a, uh, Napoleon is such a huge historical figure too. So yeah. cool that they're doing a deep dive. Yep. Awesome. What are we talking about next time? Uh, we're talking about something that uh, is just outside the 20-year time frame, or 20-year you know, moratorium that we have on ourselves. Moratorium. Um, uh, but it's kind of fringe theory for a long time, until in the past few years, where it gained a lot of traction with a lot of people. We are talking about Andrew Wakefield. You know who that is? Name sounds familiar, but not off the top of my head. He's the one who decided to publish a paper linking autism with vaccines. Oh, okay. Gotcha. All right, so we're going to talk about that next time. Yep. Little, probably as current events as we can get. (laughs) Please be sure to check out our other projects, The Drunken Pawn, where we play board games and drink on YouTube. Uh, Attack of the Final Girls, my sister podcast project with my lovely pod wife, Juliet, where we talk about horror movies. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WeEffedUp, no spaces. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And this is We, we Effed Up. Up.